Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. risen. He has risen indeed. Easter changes everything. We are now in the midst of Pentecost. Um, You will remember that it was at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, which means the Holy Spirit is available to us right now to guide, to comfort, to convict, to work within us as the very power of God to bring us into ever greater conformity with who Christ is. So, The Spirit is here, and the Spirit is in us and among us, and so this seems like a really good time for us to be talking about the way the Spirit can be manifest uh, in our common life. So maybe give that a little consideration today, not only how is the Spirit present in my own individual life, How am I cooperating moment by moment with the presence of the Spirit to bring me into greater conformity with who Christ is, to produce in my life a harvest of righteousness that brings glory to God? Um, But how is the Spirit within me working with the Spirit in others, the Spirit of Christ in others? Uh, Because that is a part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We are not individually the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ together as we are knit together with others with whom we share the unity of the Spirit and the what? The bond of peace. And so we're going to talk about that today. Uh, One headline news update here, all four officers present at the arrest and ultimately the death of George Floyd, all four of those officers have been charged. Charges against Derek Chauvin uh, have been upgraded to second-degree murder. He is the officer who put his knee on Floyd's neck and kept it there for almost nine minutes, uh, despite pleas from uh, Floyd that he couldn't breathe and pleas from the crowd that um, the officer was, in fact, killing him. Three other officers stood there and did not intervene. James Lane, J.A. Kyung, and Tao Thao are now charged with aiding and abetting murder. Dan Crenshaw uh, tweeted this, good, this is the right move. There was no gray area here. It was a relentless assault against a man who was handcuffed until he died. No office, one officer did it, but others let him do it, and there must be justice for that. The word justice is the word you are going to uh, hear and see and hopefully say frequently. In the midst of all of this, justice is the issue. And justice is not as simple as black and white. This is about justice and how it is enforced and the need for reform throughout what we call in America the justice system. Uh, Justice is about law and justice is about order, but justice is also about the deep experience of knowing that we actually matter. Um, It is uh, an ultimate righteousness. That's what just, I mean, justice is ultimately righteousness. And no, life is not fair. And maybe learning to live with life's unfairness is something that we as Christians gave into when we should have stood up and said over and over and over again, 
The fact that it's not fair is not right. It's not righteous that life is unfair. Uh, And I'm not going to go along with a system that's inherently unfair to a particular category or group of people. Not on my watch. I'm an ambassador of a king and a kingdom, a kingdom where there is no partiality and where no one enters lest he be righteous through Christ. The reason there's justice is because there's righteousness. And and if there's no righteousness, there's not going to be any justice. And if there's no uh, justice and no righteousness, I can assure you there's going to be no peace. So this is a gospel issue, until and, and I think that until we see it as a gospel issue, yes, as a sin issue, and yes, as a skin issue, uh, this is a gospel issue, and until we see it as a gospel issue, as a heart issue, um, as long as we only see it as a law issue or an order issue, if we, if we don't also see it as a gospel issue, as long as we see it as an issue of, of us and an issue of them, um, then we're going to be stuck right here in this cycle of injustice and murder and mayhem and destruction and arrest and exhaustion. Repeat, repeat, repeat. So if you're not satisfied with that, I can assure you I am not satisfied with that. Um, I'm not willing to recede back to the way things were because it was working for me and mine. I, I'm just, it was not working for too many others. And we can be better than we've proven ourselves to be. So, We are in Christ, and in him we have the power and the possibility to live differently than we have learned to live in a world where hate and injustice and unfairness reign. So it begins with how we see ourselves and how we see everyone else under the sun. So I'm going to ask you uh, to uh, to do something today. Go look in the mirror and ask yourself, who do I see? Who is that looking back at me? Do I see a person beloved and redeemed in Christ, a sower of peace, a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador of the king and the kingdom? sent into the world that God so loves with a message of the gospel for all people and every person. And then when I look at that black man with those dreads wearing a hoodie, do I see the same as that which I see when I look in the mirror? Because until, until seeing him is seeing another person just like me, um, until seeing him produces the same response as seeing myself, we're going to be where we are right now. My lived experience is different than his, but we are the same in ways that matter. We are equally created in the image of God. We are equally condemned by sin. We are equally justified at the cross. We are equally covered by Christ's blood. And if we are both in Christ, then we are brother and sister. We share the same blood. Co-heirs of the kingdom, co-laborers right here and right now in the work that Christ commissions us to do, which is to extend the gospel always and always to more and more people. We are not powerless and we ought not hide. I have the very power of the Holy Spirit, and so do you if you are in Christ. And if you're listening and you're white, then you have a job to do in your community today because you are in a position to turn toward law enforcement in ways that black people cannot, and you are in a position to turn toward fellow Christians who happen to be black in ways that law enforcement cannot. You can be the one who stands in the middle and makes a bridge. You can be the one who sets the table and invites people to talk. And you can be the one who listens and stands firm and loses neither courage nor hope. We don't have to go back, friends. We can go forward, and we can do so together, but we're going to have to make a new way, and we actually know the one whose name is the way and the truth and the life. We know his name. His name is Jesus. All right, next up, Ben Johnson and I are going to talk about the headlines of the day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
is my right Hey, Ben Johnson's joining me today from the Acton Institute. He joins me every Thursday morning. Welcome back, sir. Good to be with you as always. I robbed you of some of your time. I'm sorry. Um, let's talk about uh, cultural. Well, I'm going to use the word cultural artifacts. Um, I'm not sure that that's the right language to be using. Let's talk about the use of images. And, and we use them because they're powerful, but they can also be misused, abused, or or misappropriated. So let's walk around in this for a moment. Well, the uh, the most important aspect of uh, discussing this over the past week has been President Donald Trump speaking in front of uh, the, the Church of Presidents in Washington, D.C., an Episcopal church, the Episcopal bishop in that area, uh, condemned his use of that. And then he also visited uh, the uh, Pope John Paul II uh, Center in Washington, and the Archbishop of the Catholic Church uh, also condemned him for that. And when he was in front of uh, St. John's uh, Church in D.C., just uh, not a few steps really from the White House, he held up a Bible, and a lot of people have criticized him for that. As you say, the the power of the symbolism is really deep and uh, really important. There was a study I was trying to find, and because Google has changed its algorithm, it's impossible to find anything useful there anymore. But I remember reading it many years ago, and uh, there was an experiment that was done several years ago where they asked people either to lie or to steal. And I mean, this is where I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the, the details of it. But they asked people to do something that was immoral. And every so often, they showed them either a word or a phrase, either a Bible or a religious image or something from the Ten Commandments. And they found that when there was a religious image, they were less likely to do something they knew was immoral. So just the, the the symbolism of seeing a church, seeing a Bible, makes people think, what's inside this book? I should be living according to this book. And if there's one book that we need to live according to today, we need the bond of peace, which is discussed inside that Bible. Yeah, it's powerful for me to see you holding a Bible. Um, it's very powerful for me to hear you quote the scriptures. Um, and it's even more powerful for me to recognize you as a person who lives by the very word of God, to know that it is it is the food that you're eating, um, uh, because it, it it means it's going to be your lived out experience as well. Um, one of the other things that we've witnessed been in recent days is the desecration of memorials, um, the Lincoln Memorial among them. Um, talk with us a little bit about what you have seen, um, and and sort of what that says about this moral moment. As you say, the the Lincoln Monument is is being desecrated. It's you, you're seeing graffiti sprayed upon it, uh, as well as uh, churches are are experiencing graffiti nationwide, and uh, you know other historical monuments are either being torn down or uh, being linked in some way or another. In some cases, very directly, but in others, most tangentially to uh, racist or or um, uh, uh, chauvinistic ideas of America's past. Uh, the fact is, these are historical monuments, but Lincoln was the great unifier. Uh, he was he was the most progressive force in American race relations in history, uh, simply because he ended the greatest problem that America ever faced, not only uh, in terms of, of race relations, but in terms of coming to, to grips with the very founding doctrine that was embedded in our documents, the idea that all men are created equal. So to desecrate that or to downgrade that uh, because 
the standards of the 1850s and 60s in which he was operating are not the same as the 21st century, is uh, actually what historians call presentism, judging the past by standards that are prevalent today. For his own time, he was an historical figure deserves to be honored. Uh, I'm, I don't make, um, you know, financial recommendations, but I have learned um, from several people in my community that there's a company called Graffiti Removal, Inc. And um, it's they got all the stuff. I'm just saying people are going to need some stuff to get the graffiti off their buildings. Um, and so anyway, just know that there is uh, graffiti removal products out there. Don't just use what you have under your sink. Um, there, there are specific ways to deal with the brick and the mortar and the stone and the painted surfaces. There you go. There's my little uh, encouragement to folks. Hey, Ben, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, we have actually heard from uh, three former presidents, um, Obama, Bush, and um, uh, Carter, in terms of what is going on in the United States of America. How about we talk about a couple of those when we come back? Sounds good. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton, Acton Institute. You can find him at actonacton.org. Um, you can also uh, find him on Twitter. He is the rights writer. Um, ben, let's talk about the way that former presidents um, sometimes contribute to the conversation going on in the culture. And let's talk about the particular contributions that former President Obama and former President Bush have made to the conversation that we're having in the country today. Yes. And, uh, you know, when when you talk about former presidents, the typical role is ceremonial. They are seen and not heard after the time that they leave. And and, uh, criticizing successor is almost unheard of. Harry Truman did it. But other than that, and Herbert Hoover did it. But uh, other than that, presidents typically write off into the sunset and they make, uh, you know, fairly bland statements. President uh, George W. Bush and President Obama and President Carter all released statements about uh, the uh, unrest in Minneapolis and the uh, the policing, the actions that led to the death of George Floyd. Uh, there are positives and negatives to all of them. Generally, they are all Pacific. I, I really appreciated the fact that in President Obama's statement, he explicitly says we can in no way endorse or rationalize any kind of criminal behavior, uh, whether it's destruction of property or anything else. And he cited that moving video of the woman who was in tears because they destroyed her neighborhood, and she said she has nowhere to go now. You know, she, she can't restock her shelves. If you've ever lived day to day, you know you get enough for what you can afford that day, but if all of the stores are gone, you can't restock. So you could tell he, he felt that pain, and he conveyed that. I appreciated that. George W. Bush continues to show what a decent human being he is. Uh, you know, his deep-seated decency really uh, helped bridge the gap tremendously Throughout his presidency, he had very unpopular policies. He was he was unpopular in many ways, but I think anyone who looked at him saw that he you were looking at someone who genuinely had had a born again experience and cared about people uh, tremendously, whether you agreed or disagreed with his policies. And the same thing with Jimmy Carter. So all of their statements talk about the need for uh, greater policies that uh, will will bring about an equitable policing system. And I think that uh, Minneapolis is taking the right, to, uh, the right step, particularly with uh, Attorney General Ellison stepping in from the state and charging the police officers with the appropriate violations under the law. So 
All of those are to the positive. The negatives are that uh, both Bush and and uh, Obama mentioned systemic racism or ingrained racism in his comments. Uh, Obama talked about uh, America as though we're irredeemably racist in certain ways. It was our original sin. And if there are, if there is in fact structural racism, that means that for 16 years, four terms of American presidents did not do enough to uproot it. So if there are failures, as uh, President Obama said in his statement, then it only compounds the failures of the Bush-Obama years. So I thought that was negative on the, on their side. We don't need overheated rhetoric in a time where Americans are already overheated and hyperbolic. I think ex- I, I agree with you completely. I think expressions of grief are helpful. And then I think that if there are people who have genuinely good ideas, um, those are helpful as well. I don't think that fueling... Um, fueling anger or fueling uh, or fueling division is helpful at all. Hey, talk with us. I mean, I think, Ben, part of what you demonstrate every week when you come and share with us um, is a is a conscience that has been formed in a particular direction and a mind that has been formed by particular conversations. Talk with us about the Acton uh, Acton University. I know it's going to happen virtually this year, but it is an opportunity for other people to sort of learn to think how Ben Johnson thinks. Well, this is an amazing opportunity. I was privileged to go through this before I was ever associated with Acton in any professional capacity uh, back in 2012. And Acton University usually runs from Tuesday through Friday. You have a full slate of events throughout uh, that time. This year, because of um, forces that were completely unforeseen, we're having an online Acton University, half a schedule for two days uh, for uh, the 17th and 18th of, um, of this coming month. And courses will run. You'll have a total of seven sessions plus two major speakers uh, each day. Uh, The cost is $300, but financial aid is available. So uh, we're taking applications up until the 17th. But you have an opportunity here for some tremendous speakers on topics that I think will be of tremendous interest uh, to everyone. Uh, People who uh, you've heard on this program, like Hunter Baker, uh, for example, and uh, others, uh, Anne Rathbone Bradley, I believe, has been on the show. Of course, uh, Father Robert Sirico, the founder of the Acton Institute. Margarita Mooney, who has a tremendous uh, history, and she'll speak about her own experiences in communist Cuba. Uh, and many, many others who will speak about everything from culture to uh, the interplay of economics and how we need a virtuous society. The fact of the matter is, if we are a virtuous people, a religious people who put our principles into action, then the government can recede. We wouldn't need militarized police in the streets if we weren't having the kind of unrest that we're having today. And so if we have a virtuous society, government can recede. If we learn to cooperate, which is the essence of the free market, uh, that would bring so much peace into a world that needs it today. So those are the sorts of things you'll talk about and understand how we can help the poor. Uh, how limited government and virtue and Christian charity and other religious charities can help infuse virtue and meaning and life and flourishing into our culture. So all of that is available. Uh, You can go to university.acton.org, Acton University, again, the 17th and 18th of this month. Come join us. University.acton.org. Ben Johnson, thank you as always for joining us today for what you are posting. I particularly appreciated the post that you have recently about challenging the church to respond to uh, the aggression of China in relationship to Hong Kong. So encourage people to go to acton.org and read that as well. Ben, 
Thanks, as always. God bless you. Keep increasing the peace. Mm, Amen. We'll be right back. So um, we haven't talked about the pro-life movement in in several days because we have been um, rightly consumed um, with conversations about systemic racism and how we as Christians in the culture today um, are going to have to engage differently in conversation with different people to find different ways forward. Um, I'm not going to use the term solution because the solution is the gospel. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that it's reasonable to propose that you and I um, in a secular society are going to arrive at political answers to what is a spiritual question ultimately. And so, yes, there is systemic racism uh, and yes, there is systemic sin. And so racism is uh, one evidence of systemic sin in our culture. Another evidence of systemic sin in our culture is is abortion and the embrace of abortion um, really across every sector of American society, including including increasing percentages of those who self-identify as evangelical Christians. I know that is hard for you to believe, um, but that is, in fact, uh, what what surveys and polling tells us. And so um, the pro-life movement is is a reality in the culture. It's also a, a reality that's changing. It's getting younger, which I think is very positive. It's getting more broad, which means it does not just talk about abortion. The pro-life movement now talks about immigration. It talks about the plight of the refugee. The pro-life movement talks about black lives uh, mattering. Uh, the pro-life movement talks about single moms and how we uh, equip them to raise the children whom we have encouraged them not to abort. So the pro-life movement is really a broad and robust conversation these days. It talks about people with disabilities. It talks about uh, the pro-life movement is talking about uh, the other end of life. But the pro-life movement is also constantly under assault. And so to talk with me next about the assault, the humiliation, really, the ongoing humiliation of the pro-life movement is Professor Karen Swallow Pryor. That conversation up next. For most parents, the thought of giving their son or daughter more control is absolutely terrifying. But it's the only way to help teens develop into mature adults. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Kids these days are fighting for control. They're longing to take the principles they've learned and apply them to their lives. But when parents are unwilling to let go, teens feel as though they're left with no other option than to take control by force. Now, I'm from Texas, so I like to think of it this way. When you're sitting on top of a horse that's out of control, you're supposed to loosen the reins, not pull back. So are you giving your teen control of his life? Don't wait until he starts fighting for it. Instead, begin loosening the reins today. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, we're going to talk about the pro-life movement. Karen, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. It's good to be back with you. 
Good morning. Um, so let me just go ahead and tell you, in the bottom of the next hour, I'm talking with a woman who wrote a book called Paul Verbs, P-A-W. And so I know a as a, right, but I mean, <laughs> I know as a dog lover, you, you would appreciate that. Um, but I am also thinking that as a, uh, as a professor of English, um, that might be troubling to you. <laughs> well, it, it could go either way. <laughs> I know. I know. I just thought I'd, I'd share. Though, for sure. I, I just thought I would share with you that we we don't every conversation we have is not quite as heavy as the one you and I are about to have now. Sometimes I do lighten it up. Let's um let's talk about assume that um I have said nothing to my audience about this topic of Jane Roe. Um, and what your article describes as the humiliation of the pro-life movement, because I am not sure I have even read them in on this storyline because we have been so consumed with conversations about race. So sure, um, sure. so let's start with uh, a bit of an explainer. Well, a.k.a. Jane Rowe is a documentary that was released on FX um, really just before all of this current chaos erupted um, about Two weeks ago, I think it was, two or three weeks ago, uh, much-anticipated documentary that um, is very much the words and life of Jane Roe herself, who is it's called AKA Jane Roe because that was the pseudonym used for Norma McCorvey, the woman whose case went before the Supreme Court and in 1973 gave America legalized abortion. Um, so the names Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe may mean something to listeners. Um, and her story has been told a number of times. Um, she's written her own books. Um, and her story is basically that she was born in poverty, a victim of abuse, became pregnant, was looking for an abortion, found some lawyers who, um, actually are even, you know, ended up ended up getting an adoption, never even got an abortion. Um, but her lawyers took the case all the way to the Supreme Court, and that ruling was was won. Um, it was later discovered that, you know, she because she had said she had been raped, and that's why she was pregnant and wanted an abortion. That wasn't true. Um, so the whole case is, was built on a lie. But through the providence of God, Norma McCorvey eventually became a Christian um, through the witness of, of pro-life activists uh, and became a pro-life spokesperson. And then this documentary was showing her saying at the end of her life that that part was all a lie. So that was the film. And I, I wrote an essay just kind of trying to sort out some of the complicated um, emotions and thoughts I had as I watched the documentary. One of the conversations that I think it surfaces, Karen, is when somebody has a conversion experience, there are lots of people who would like to deny that that is true. Um, there are lots of people who would like to point to anyone who expresses um, the movement away from one um, one way of life to another way of life. Um, you know, a, a redemption, a conversion, a deconversion. Like we would like mm -hmm. to, we would like to deny deconversion is a real thing. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that is some of what it feels like here. Like it, it feels like it disempowers my argument if you could deconvert. Um, however, in reality, that person's lived experience is that person's lived experience. And I am not in a position to tell you, um, one way or the other, what's going on. Yeah, I think part of the problem, uh, especially with, within the church is that we do, 
we do rightly emphasize the conversion experience. That's actually one of the five uh, points in the quadrilateral that defines evangelicalism since the 18th century is conversionism, um, which is different from the older tradition in the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church, where you just sort of are born into that tradition and confirmed. Evangelicals have always emphasized that conscious, deliberate moment of conversion that we make. And as an evangelical, I believe in conversion. But I think we have often emphasized, and again, I'm talking about a spiritual conversion and also, you know, some of these, you know, more metaphorically, political, ideological conversions. But we put so much emphasis on that, that moment, that hour, that day, or that altar call that we don't put enough emphasis on the sanctification process, the growth process. Um, Because even though I do believe that our spiritual conversion occurs in an instant when we receive Christ and um, he uh, accepts us and writes our name in the book of life, um, we still have to grow. We still have to grow. We still have to develop. And that process is very messy for most of us. Uh, And that's the part I think that we don't make a lot of room for. And that encourages more us to use a model in our own thinking and emotions of like conversion, deconversion, black, white, you know, before, after, as opposed to just a messy, bumpy process. Talking with Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, we're talking about a piece she has posted at religionnews.com, and it is entitled uh, AKA... Jane Rowe. That is the name of the documentary, really, uh, about which we are talking. And then uh, the ongoing uh, title is "The Humiliation of the Pro-Life Movement." We talk. Let's talk a little bit about humiliation, Karen. Um, that is a strong word. Um, it's a it's a powerful word. Um, I am always talking with um, younger Christians about uh, the the benefit of humbling ourselves uh, versus being humiliated. <laughs> Um, and so let's talk about that. Well, the reason why I focused on that um, aspect and even, you know, I usually writers don't get to write their own titles, but I, I, I wanted that title um, because there was a lot of advance notice, a lot of um, of pre-screening of the of the film. Pro-lifers weren't like I weren't allowed to pre-screen it, but major news outlets that would be sympathetic to the film's message um, that. Norma McCorby was not really pro-life at the end of her her life. Um, there's a, there were a lot of articles written, and the headlines screamed out that Norma McCorby was paid to change her mind. That's what a number of headlines said. That's what stories said, and then and how corrupt and hypocritical the pro-life movement was. So I went into the film thinking, and and I knew enough to know that some of those descriptions of what happens in the film were true. Um, and so I went into the film. And, and so, you know, expecting Norma McCorvey to sort of be an embarrassment because, she, you know, we held her up as a pro-life hero. And it turns out she says it was an act and the pro-life people that they chose to represent the pro-life movement who were close to Norma McCorvey, but certainly were not um, those who spent the most time with her at the end of her life or knew her the best. Um, they presented sort of stark, you know, caricatures of, of, of pro-life people. And so you could, 
it would be easy as a pro-life person, as a Christian, to walk away from that film and think, as I did, how humiliating. That was kind of just the words that were in my mind, how humiliate, how humiliating it is to be mocked and exposed on you know, national television in a well-crafted documentary. But the more that I thought about it, I just thought, well, you really can't be pro-life without being humili- humiliated. It is a humbling, humbling position to be in a culture today that values so much more um, than being pro-life and is so eager to take advantage of people who genuinely are pro-life. When we come back, Karen, I would love to talk about um, what it means to be genuinely pro-life in the midst of a cultural conversation where some people mean some people think that means exclusively one thing. And I want to read a couple of um, uh, parts of conversations that I had with listeners after a segment yesterday so that you can get a, You can help me do better in terms of um, articulating the breadth of what it means to be pro-life in some people's minds when for other people it means something very, very narrow. So I'm going to continue this conversation with Professor Karen Swallow Pryor in just a moment. Um, We are excited about the transition that she is making to become a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary this fall. Her most recent book is on reading well, finding the good life through great literature. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Professor Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, I'm I really am excited to introduce her as a, a professor of English, Christianity, and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We now have, um, I mean, you know, we love to talk with Bruce Ash, Ashford from uh, SBTS. Matt Hawkins is on with us. He's a, a, a candidate there uh, in a PhD program. I mean, I just you know I just feel like um, you know. You guys are doing good stuff. It's a good, it's a good tribe down there. With, with good conversation. That's it's good. Goal. It's good. It's a good, it's a, it's a good tribe. Um, okay. So, Karen, yesterday, well, in this ongoing conversation that we're having uh, as a nation, mm-hmm. in, it's not just a conversation about race. It really is a conversation about justice. And mm-hmm. it really is a conversation um, about how we see one another and partiality. It is a conversation about the gospel, or it, it must be. It must be a conversation about the gospel. Um, I confess to my listeners every single day, I'm learning how to have the conversation, um, and I make mistakes all the time uh, it, because these conversations are had in real time. And so, you know, this morning I have a listener, you know, calling me out for not, uh, not confronting my guest uh, for using the word if in relationship to systemic racism. Yesterday, I have listeners who are, um, uh, you know, who are upset that I allowed a conversation to proceed um, that was about the president of the United States, um, uh, because there are evangelicals out there who are asking questions about the veracity of the things that he says um, and whether or not, you know, his his character sort of exemplifies the Christian faith in ways that are a positive witness to others. Um the the pushback that I got was, you know, this is the most pro-life president that we've ever had. I I responded to those individuals by um, by actually trying to articulate a more robust understanding of of the pro-life movement than just abortion. It's not just limited to an abortion conversation for me. It's a dignity of all human life conversation. That's the pro-life conversation I'm trying to have. Can you talk with us about what it means to be pro-life today? 
Sure. This and that's that's a great question, and it's um, it is one. There, there's a lot of debate that revolves around just using that term. And as a person of words, <laughs> whose whose profession centers on language and the way that we use it, um, I really wish that we would agree on precise terms so that we can actually have the conversations about the things we need to talk about. Um, and I mean, the term pro-life goes back at least thirty years. Um, and I remember when it first started being used in the media at the insistence of the pro-life side, because because it used to, if you look back in, in around Roe versus Wade times in news coverage, they simply used the terms anti-abortion and, and, and pro-abortion rights. And I think those terms are great. I think that's clear. <laughs> um, but in the age of marketing, everybody wants to have a, you know, a positive spin and the Abortion rights people were brilliant in centering the discussion on choice, and the pro-lifers kind of did their own version of, of putting a spin on it, that saying we're, we're not anti-anything, we're pro-life, um, and it was centered only on abortion. It was a po- Those were political terms about the one's position on abortion law. Now, you know, things are increasingly complicated. We're finding that the old categories, the old binary categories, categories that we've used to define the modern age really don't fit anymore in a lot of places, um, including the two-party system. A lot of people are finding that has its flaws. Um, And so these terms don't really work anymore. But the main reason that the term pro-life doesn't work the old way is because those who stand against abortion, and I am one of them, have been exposed in mass as being hypocritical for not being holistically pro-life. And not even on other issues, but even on abortion itself. Um, the, our approach has been narrow and has been inadequate, and it cannot accommodate some of these other issues that come up that are very much derived from the same ethic that causes us to be opposed to abortion, and yet we don't apply those same principles. So all that to say, um, I do believe that if the term pro-life is used, not the historic way, but the way that the term, based on its actual principles, then it certainly does apply to a whole life picture, not just abortion. Thank you. Um, Thank you for... um helping us clarify the meaning of words, the importance of defining what we mean when we use a term today, um, because I do think that is an important conversation tool in, um, in virtually every conversation we're trying to have today. Um, mm-hmm. Words do not mean the same thing to everyone. And until I can be sure that the person with whom I am uh, talking, seeking to converse, is u- that we are using um, that we share the understand that we share an understanding of the meaning of the words that we're using. Our communication, our ability to communicate, is going to fall short. So, thank you for um, helping us uh, uh, understand a little bit more of what's going on um, when we use the term pro-life today, how it is used, what it means, and because I think this is a, a developing conversation uh, for us culturally. Absolutely. And on the other side, we I don't think it's correct to say that the president is the most pro-life president unless you're using the old definition. Yes, he 
arguably has enacted a number, the most anti-abortion policies or attempted to and appointed those judges, but he does not, he is not pro-life in this holistic sense that the, the rising generation, the younger generations are, are using the term that way. Um, and I think it's a better use of the term. And I, I have no problem being anti-abortion. And if we're talking about abortion, I think that's a term that works better. But if we're talking about a pro-life ethic, then we certainly need to be talking about more than abortion. Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you for always talking with us about more. I just love that. Thank you. Let's talk about more. Uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, she is on her way to South A- Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, thank you, as always, for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, apologizing for those of you who had a little bit of a garbled feed during that um, during that last segment uh, in the Twin Cities. Paul assures me he has switched the translator. I don't know what that means, but there you go. Okay, um, thank you for all that fancy radio talk, Paul Perot. Uh, no problem. Um, uh, I'm sure that we're running out of time. I don't actually have a clock up this morning, so who knows? Um, let me say this at the end of this hour. Tomorrow, Dan Darling is going to be here to guest host the program. Thank you um, for praying for my mom. She is being released from the hospital today, so I'm going to leave after today's program to go down and spend the weekend with her. Be kind to Dan. Continue to pray for my mom. Um, and we got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.